hear the word of the Lord from Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. So John 17, verses 6 through 26. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For, I, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. As I've been walking through and praying through this passage this week, God has been showing me that this prayer Jesus prays before he is betrayed, arrested, and ultimately crucified is the exact prayer that his disciples needed. They not only needed this prayer to be prayed, they needed this prayer to be answered. The church today still needs this prayer to be answered. And how vibrant you think the church's mission is may depend on whether or not you believe God is answering this prayer. The reason why I say that 
It's because our present reality, and Jesus prays into this reality. I mean, he, he knows what is about to happen to himself, right? I mean, he told us, he, he lays down his life willingly. No one takes it from him. And his hour has come. But he is also thinking about what his disciples are about to face and what pains and opposition the church is going to experience. You see, even though Jesus conquered the grave, we still have an enemy waging war against us. Jesus speaks assuredly about his returning to the Father, meaning he will conquer death. At the cross, Jesus is going to flip the world upside down. But in the same breath that there is assurance, there is petition. Protect them by the power of your name, verse 11. Protect them from the evil one, verse 15. And we can be assured that God has answered this prayer. And he is still answering this prayer. As Pastor Josh talked about last week, the Father has glorified the Son, and in glory he remains, ruling in victory and interceding on our behalf. Jesus is still praying for you today. The works of the cross are no less true today than they were for those who first believed. But the evil one has a thousand schemes designed to rob you of all that is promised in Christ and to deter you from pursuing your purpose that brings glory to Jesus. The evil one comes to steal and kill and destroy. But the good shepherd gives life, and that shepherd is praying for his church today, that we be kept in allegiance to God. And as much as we are kept in his name, we'll be unified and so glorified, Jesus. Now, what I want to do this morning is walk us through how Jesus is praying for the sustaining of this new faith community. And as we are stabilized, see the new purpose he gives us as people brought out of the world and joined together in Christ Jesus on mission. First, followers of Jesus are given out of the world. Second, followers of Jesus are no longer of the world. Third, Followers of Jesus are sent into the world. And fourth, followers of Jesus are united in Christ. What we must recognize in all of this is that Jesus is glorified by the faithful gospel witness of the church. Jesus is glorified by the faithful gospel witness of the church. This is how we honor Jesus, by displaying the life-changing power of the gospel to the world and all of life, in character, in words, and in deed. That means our mission as a church is to live sent lives, displaying the power of the gospel to change us from the inside out. And we must bear witness to this, changing hap- this change happening in us to the whole world. Now, before we jump into this, I want to make sure it's very clear what we mean when we say the world. The church will will face incredible opposition from the world and its influences. So when I say world, I mean everything created by God, 
still living in active rebellion to him. Ray Ortland gives us a stunning picture of what I mean here. I mean, consider this. All people were created in the image of God, right? But now we are distortions of God. We were located in a glorious universe, but now all we experience is an environment of accusation. And we will never change, not even a little. We are the way we are. Our wills are unfree. And facing ourselves honestly is unendurable. That existence is impossible to bear. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Well, we do what every other human does. We shift the blame in order to justify ourselves and to relieve our anxiety. The whole world is a mess, right? And it's always someone else's fault. That is the same world that Jesus was sent to and is the same world the church must relate to today. So as Jesus makes his petitions, he is praying for this new kingdom community to thrive in a world that will hate them just as they hated Jesus. You are a part of that community today. But we must consider how this community formed and how it will continue to grow, which brings us to our first point here. God gives people out of the world. In verse 6, Jesus says, I have revealed you, the Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So God has given those that belong to him to Jesus. That much is obvious, right? I mean, we see that. But notice that this giving was before the disciples understood all that Jesus was to do. That's made clear by the fact that Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. He's not yet, the the disciples have not yet received the advocate to, to lead them into all truth. So the question I have for us is, why them? Why these 11 men? Why does the Father give these 11 men to Jesus? Why does he give any of us to Jesus? If the disciples have been given to Jesus, then we must eliminate any possibility that might suggest they chose him. They weren't the most willing, the most educated, the most likely to succeed, or any other superlative you might want to give them. They did not choose him. In John 6, when every, everyone else is fleeing from Jesus, they're, saying his, they're abandoning him. They're saying his, his teaching is too hard. Jesus then turns to these men and he says, What about you? Are you going to abandon me too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Ding, ding, ding. Peter just won Sunday school. But Jesus doesn't take that as an affirmation of their choosing him. He takes it as an affirmation of his choosing of them. Jesus responds in in John 6, 70. He says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. You see, even the son of perdition can't get one over on Jesus. So God's giving was his choosing, not theirs and not yours. Second, Jesus is the one who reveals. The Father did not give the disciples to Jesus because he saw something special in them. Rather, Jesus worked something out in them. This is a matter of God's grace, his unmerited favor toward them 
and toward us. I mean, some, some of you have a story like this, right? You, I was born into a Christian family. Therefore, I have always been a Christian. The problem with that narrative is that too many of us who, who have that story place all the impetus for our belonging to God on our belonging to a Christian family. My children, by God's grace, my, my children will grow up in a Christian home. But my best attempts at Christian parenting, stewardship, and discipleship will not be what produces a heart that loves Jesus. That's just the reality. I wish, I wish it were that simple. I wish I could just put these things in and get this result. But that, that is not how it works. Which means that our belonging to God is not based on our works. It's not based on our goodness. It's based on God's graciousness toward you and Jesus. I mean, in verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, I, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus is praying for those that belong to God because they belong to him. To drive this home even further, to be given out of the world, God gives us out of the world, to be given out of the world must mean that we were once a part of it, right? Meaning everything that we said is true about the world was once true about these 11 men and was once true about you. There was a time when you did not know God, just like the rest of the world does not know God. You were stuck in an environment of accusation and there was nothing inside of you that could lead to real lasting change. Hopeless, nothing, there's nothing. But before you knew God, he gave you out of the world. And as Jesus has worked out faith in the disciples' lives, he is working out the same faith in our lives. So God is giving people out of the world. He has given you out of the world. So what this means for us is that we should place our trust in the saving work of Jesus. Our belonging is not our doing. God is, God is at work here. And, and that means also that salvation in the lives of your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, is not your doing. God does the giving and Jesus does the revealing. So will you take those matters to the Lord and pray for the unbelieving world you know by name? Will you pray for them? They need you to pray for them. Continue to witness to them, but also know, you must know, you must live this out. God must act. He must do something in their lives. Pray to him, ask him. Number two, Jesus transforms those he keeps. As we've been saying, the reason why we come to the Father is not because of something Jesus saw in us, but because of something that Jesus has worked in us. As we have been given out of the world through the works of Jesus, we're no longer of the world. We're no longer of the world. Jesus says this in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. What we're seeing here is that the words of eternal life revealed by Jesus produce in us new life. Faith has been born in them. As Jesus is praying, he's revealing to us that the disciples are not of the world anymore. They are of God. 
John explains this in, in the prologue. He, he says this. This is John, in John 1. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. What it means for the disciples to be chosen out of the world and to be cleansed by the word is that like Jesus, they are now aligning themselves with the gracious revelation of God that we see in Jesus himself. Jesus is the word. The fact that they side with God, that they believe Jesus is sent from God, will lead to tension with the world. So what I want to draw our attention to here is the petition Jesus makes for the Father to protect those that belong to him. He prays this twice, once in in verse 11 and once in in verse 15. In in verse 11, Jesus says he is no longer of the world, and, and so he makes this petition to the Father. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So what does it mean to be kept in the Father's name? To be kept in the Father's name means that we adhere to his word and that we are conformed to Christ's likeness. This is what it means to no no longer be of the world, but to be of God. It means that we receive Jesus. And receiving Jesus means that we embrace his words as truth and that we allow his word to reshape who we are. The more we are conformed to the words of Jesus, the more we adhere to his character. The more we adhere to the character of Jesus, the more we will be unified as one body and reflect the glory of God to the watching world. This is what it means to be kept in his name. In other words, a a church that honors Jesus will uphold God's word because they're being kept in his name. I mean, isn't this what sets us apart from the rest of the world? Isn't the church the place where God's word is declared and upheld? Isn't the church the the place where, aren't aren't we meant to witness who God is and, and testify what he is like to the rest of the world? Who else will do this? This is our place in the world. And we're talking about the words of God that establish the hearts and minds of God's people. To care about the word of God means that we not only know what is true, but that we reflect the truth, the outworking of the gospel in all of our lives. Second, who can survive the world's opposition if the Lord did not keep us? They they put Jesus on the cross. How are we to sustain ourselves apart from God? Notice in verse 11 again that Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer. And then in verse 15, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, Meaning he's not taking us with him yet. It's kind of sobering, right? I had a friend who once told me he had a, he had a list of prayers that he was scared to pray because if answered would mean life would get kind of hard for him. And he didn't mean that as like, oh, like, like bad things would happen, but, but that it would require him to be more faithful, right? I don't know if you have, have a list like that. I don't, I don't personally have a, a list like that. I could probably create one. But if I did have a list, I would probably put this one on there, right? Like, I, I would rather Jesus just take me with him. That, that would be a lot easier. 
But Jesus prays not that his disciples be taken out of the world, but that we be kept from the evil one. I mean, isn't, isn't our tendency when we pray to ask whatever we think would bring us the, the greatest good in our life? I mean, we tend to ask for, for what we would think would, would bring us the most joy and peace. And, and what else are we supposed to do? I mean, I, I believe that when we pray, we should come to Jesus as openly and as honestly as we possibly can. There's no reason to, to hide what our hearts desire because the Lord knows our hearts. So why go to him with fancy language and, and lies? We have to go with, with where we're at. It's been my experience that this is how God uses prayer to align my will with his. I come as openly and honestly as I can in prayer, and his answer, whether yes or no, as I perceive it, ends up bringing me closer to him. It draws me into him. And so Jesus, Jesus pray for our protection as we remain in the world. Man, the world is a tough place to remain. It's a tough place to be. But Jesus, whose desires are one with the Father's, knows exactly what he is praying. Do your prayers sound like this? Mine don't always. I should pray like this. Marcus Rainsford notes here that the Lord does not ask riches for his disciples or honors or worldly influence, but he does most earnestly pray that they may be kept from evil, separated from the world, qualified for duty, and brought home safely to heaven. And this, and, and Rainsford goes on to say that, that soul prosperity is the best prosperity. And this soul prosperity isn't just for his disciples, but it's, but it's for all those who are coming to faith in Jesus through the ongoing ministry of the church. Praise be to God for that. Praise be to God that we continue to see people coming to faith in Jesus today. So he said that Jesus transforms those he keeps. So the application for us here then is, is to give our total allegiance to God's word. And one way we can do that is by embracing the strangeness of God's word and allowing it to conform us to Christ's likeness. Embracing the strangeness of God's word and allowing it to conform us to, to Christ's likeness. Now, when I say that, that God's word is strange, what I mean is that it's, it's strange from the world's vantage. You see, what was once strange to you is now being worked out by God, now being worked out in you by God's spirit and, you, and, and increasingly becoming more beautiful and glorious to you. I mean, singing about, about a resurrected king, singing about the beauty of Jesus' name, newsflash, a lot of people don't do that. Don't know if you knew that. And as we look more like Christ, the onlooking world will increasingly find us strange. Russell Moore wrote in his book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, about a civil conversation he once had with a lesbian progressive activist who was absolutely puzzled by his archaic sexual ethic. I mean, just, just flabbergasted. From his vantage, he, he was merely upholding the historic Christian teaching and biblical ethic on marriage. To her, more was an oddity in our progressive society. She told him he was the first person she'd ever met in real life who held that marriage is meant to be the union between one man and one woman. He said she literally laughed out loud at him as he was sharing some of his views. She then asked him, seriously, do you know how strange all of this sounds to me? 
What Moore says in response floored me. It's a response that speaks to the kind of fidelity we ought to share in God's word. It's an embrace of biblical fidelity over worldly approval. He said, yes, I do. It sounds strange to me too. But what you should know is, we believe even stranger things than this. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. Let's face it, church. We are a strange people. You do not fit in the world. You don't belong here. But the world we live in thinks us strange. And that's okay because, it's okay because our worth is not found in the words of men, but the words of God that brings eternal life. Give your allegiance to God's word. Be strange. And so be like Jesus. Three, Jesus sends those he transforms in the world. So we're, we're given out of the world, we're transformed, we're, we're of God, we're no longer of the world, we're of God, and, and, and we're sent into the world. Those Jesus transforms, he sends. We have been set apart, and the reason why we have been set apart is because God desires for us, his church, to carry out a specific purpose of making his love known to the world. If we look at verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus' mission has been accomplished. He's returning to the Father who sent him. But now, just as Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners, Jesus is sending the community of Christ followers into the world to bear witness to the glorious gospel that has turned their lives upside down. So what we see from verses 17 through 19 is that the church is set apart for a mission. That mission is living godly lives as sent people, proclaiming the power of the gospel to a hostile world. The church is sent as a holy community, reserved for God and preserved by God. We reflect the glory of Jesus to the world in the way that we live sent lives just as Jesus lived a sent life. We've already seen that the vitality of our mission depends on the growth we experience in being conformed to Christ's likeness. And we've said that it's the work of God that produces this in us. We trust in him to do this work in us now through his spirit. How vibrant our witness is to the world depends on how vital Christ's work is in our lives. How vibrant our witness is to the world depends on how vital Christ's work is in our lives. In other words, the vibrancy of our living out this mission of gospel proclamation proclamation in all of life depends on our growing in godliness. We need to live lives that are congruent with the gospel. So there's a distinction we are making here between godliness and worldliness. Godliness means living in a way that is so conformed to the truth And worldliness means living in a way that suppresses the truth. Godliness means living before the world in complete surrender to the lordship of Jesus. It means that you don't pick and choose what you get to keep. You submit everything to Jesus in trust and love. The gospel informs the decisions you make, the jobs you work, your dispositions in those jobs, the way you treat your boss or your employees, 
the way you spend your resources, your time, your energy, the people you engage with, the conversations you have, and of course the places you choose to live, how you choose to live, why you choose to live that way, how you interact with your neighbors, how you conduct your marriages, how you parent your children. In all of this, you are bearing gospel witness in the world, in word, deed, and character. And as you bear witness, as, as part of the church's vibrant mission in the world, you're bringing glory to Jesus and testifying to the rest of the world that God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus. And he continues to love the world because he sends his people, the church. God's love is still being made known today through you. Think about how much Jesus loves you. Think about how much you know that God loves you because of what Jesus has done for you. God has given you that same mission to go before the world and make it known to them. So what this means for us then is that we tell of God's love to the world through the gospel and trust the Spirit to move. That's simple, right? We can do that. I mean, there was a Christian study on, on evangelism that was put out recently by Barna Group. The headline for the study that, that attracted so much attention said this, almost half of practicing Christian millennials say evangelism is wrong. What? I mean, did, did any of you read this? Did you see this? Well, when you actually read the words, when you actually read the, the numbers, it, it, it gets more confusing. The numbers show that 96% of millennials agree that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. That's good. 94% believe the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. That's also really good, right? And 73% believe they are gifted at sharing their faith with other people. That's a, that's a high number. By the way, those, those first two percentages, those are on par with the previous three generations. That last one is about 10 to 12 percentage points on average higher than the previous three generations. So millennials think they're, they're pretty good. What I find most interesting, however, are the final two statements mentioned. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And... If someone disagrees with you, it means that they're judging you. The first one is where the headline comes from. 47% of millennials agree it's wrong to share personal beliefs like that. The second one, if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. 40% millennials agreed with that. 40% of millennials think that, that disagreement equals judgment. The reason I point this out is because it shows a set of beliefs that are incongruent with understanding God's mission for the church. We cannot let the world's disagreements with us dissuade us. It is possible that we have become so accustomed to such disagreements that we become too sensitive in speaking openly about our faith and we so mute the message of, of God's love. Church, let the glory of Jesus shine before you. People may reject you, remember, you were strange. But the Spirit will draw some out of the world and transform them just as He has done in you. So trust the Spirit to do that.
Trust the Spirit to do that in somebody else's life. He will. Finally, Jesus sustains those who are in him. Jesus sustains those who are in him. Jesus prays not just for his disciples, but for all who will believe in the message of his sent ones. In verses 20 through 21, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Meaning Jesus prayed for us and he is still praying for us because he's alive and risen. Jesus' prayer teaches us that the way we relate to one another matters. In fact, the way we relate to one another shows the world a kind of peace that comes only by knowing the Godhead. At this point, we may be asking, how, how do I do all of this? How, how do we do all of this? But we must keep in view that, that Jesus isn't praying for unity for unity's sake, but that in our unity, we will show the love of Christ. The fact that Jesus is praying for unity, however, means that it is possible for opposition to arise within the church. I mean, we, we would expect that opposition come from outside the church because followers of Jesus have been sent to tell the truth about Jesus to a hostile world. We would expect that opposition. We've talked about that opposition. But it's also possible that opposition can arise among the fellowship, among the believers. I mean, the fact that Judas is about to betray Jesus should teach us that you can have the appearance of being among the people of God, yet have a heart far from him. But as we are being conformed day by day into Christ's likeness, we can trust that the Lord is working out a unity in us that is very much foreign to the world. The kind of unity Jesus is praying for so entirely unlike what the world has ever seen because it shows that the gospel has the power to unite a group of people that, that no other bond would dare dream of bringing together. And what unites us is our shared love for the word of God by which we are being changed and our desire to carry out the mission of God through the help of God's spirit. It's God in us. It's everything that God has secured for us. Just the other day in our community, my, my wife Sarah was talking with a, a woman at the playground. And, you know, she obviously saw that we have two little kids. We have two kids under two, um, which is hard. Uh, it's fun. It's hard. And, and this woman was, was commenting how she, she, just, she couldn't possibly imagine what it would be like to, to, to do that without having family close by. And Sarah's response might sound strange. It probably, probably sounded strange to, to this woman. But she said, essentially, my family is close by. And I'm not talking about her parents or my parents, our families. I'm talking about our church. Raising kids is incredibly hard. Some of you have kids who are my age, and it's still really hard. But I'm amazed at the way the church loves our kids. Treats them like their own, all of them. I mean, the, the cuteness factor eventually wears out, right? 
but still, still there's love for our kids. And I'm not just talking about the toddlers. The 20 and 30-somethings. Do you know how smart 20 and 30-somethings think we are? We think we're really smart. <laughs> and you love us out of a love for Christ. And not just the old young kids, but also the, the just older youth. The world is a really tough place to be sometimes. But I cannot tell you how often I have been strengthened by brothers and sisters in Christ who love each other in this place. Thank you, Lord, for this. Oh, praise God. We can love like this because of the radical love by which we have been loved. Get this. Hear this. You have been united in Christ Jesus and therefore experience the same love the Father has for his Son. What we see in Jesus' prayer for unity among the church is that God the Father loves followers of Jesus with the same kind of love he has for his Son. We find that in verse 26. And our display of unity is so unlike what the world has ever seen that it can be explained by superior love only made known by the power of the gospel to save. And so the final application for us here is consider your state in Christ Jesus. Consider who you are in Christ. You may be asking, what if I don't feel united in Christ? I mean, what, what should that even feel like? I don't feel that. I don't feel connected to Jesus. Let me tell you right now, true biblical Christianity does not offer you the satisfaction of feeling as the basis of your union. In fact, it blows that option out of the water. In Christ, you became intimately involved in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. No one who is in Christ truly struggles to have union with God because our union is not about our experience. It's about Jesus' experience. We may struggle to have communion with him, but not union. What's the difference? You can have a more intimate communion with God but you cannot be any more secure in your union in Christ. Kyle Worley defines communion with God as the ongoing cultivation of enjoying every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You may rightly experience a disruption in your union, in your communion with God, but this feeling of distance from God is not, as, is not a disruption of your union. Union is where every spiritual blessing has been secured for you in Christ. Hear this, this writing from William Romaine. Consider thy state. Thou art a pardoned sinner, not under the law, but under grace. Freely, fully saved from the guilt of all thy sins. There is none to condemn, God having justified thee. He sees thee in his Son, wash thee in his blood, clothe thee in his righteousness, and he embraces him and thee, the head and the members with the same affection. With the same affection. God embraces those in Christ with the same affection he has in his son Jesus. Have you shared in that? You can. He does. Jesus is glorified by the faithful witness of the church. The church is still being blessed today by God's answering of this prayer. So would you pray with me to thank him for these blessings? 
Father, we know that, that we have a big task before us. God, you, you have given us a, a huge responsibility, but, but God, we know, we know that, the, that the vibrancy of our mission as a church depends on, on our vitality of, of you working in us. You, you are working out something in us. You have done that and you continue to do that. God, may we lean on you. May we trust in your spirit to move in us. May we trust in you. God, may we seek to, to tell the world what you have told us. You have given us your words. May we give your words to the world. God, and, and if they think us strange, who, who cares? God, we care what you care about. We care what you think. May we value your words over man's words. Though man may not approve of us, you do, God. So may you approve of us in, in pursuing the mission that you have given us as a church. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.